This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with former Great Britain doubles number one tennis player, Sarah Borwell. She discusses her development as a junior and the effect her coach had on her long-term development, her journey as a pro and participating in tournaments such as Wimbledon and the Commonwealth Games, and her current project in supporting players with their transition out to the States. Please be part of the growth of this podcast by sharing, subscribing and leaving a review. I hope you enjoy. So Sarah, really appreciate you jumping on. I know we've had a little bit of a catch up there, but um, sounds like all's good, all safe and well with you guys. Yeah, everything's good over here. Just trying to kind of battle through with working and having two kids now. I didn't realise, I wish someone had told me when I was in my 20s how busy I would be once I actually have children. So I bet, I bet you thought that the tennis was hard compared uh, and then you've got to run around after them. You're like, actually, the tennis is probably a bit easier. Yeah, no, I just, uh, we were like trying to just go out and celebrate a win the other day and go out for a drink and we couldn't find a babysitter. So I I missed the days when at 28, we just like, oh, do you want to go and just go out and get some dinner or something? So yeah, it's, it's, uh, you've got to be very good with your time management skills now, that's for sure. So, but I think from my perspective, it's a really good opportunity just to kind of go into a little bit of the world of tennis, which um, I've done once with Barry uh, Scollo from the University of Bath, and he's probably discussed it from a management point of view and what they do in that programme. But you've probably got a very different perspective, both having been through the UK system and then now obviously living out in the States and seeing what they do out there. So for people that might not have come across you, do you just want to explain a little bit of an overview of I guess, how you got into the sport, where the sport took you in and where you are currently? Yeah, I, I guess I was, I'm like my five-year-old is now where I just have bags of energy. And so my mum and dad had to get me into loads of different sports. So my my favourite sport is actually football. But at the time when I was growing up, that there was more going on in other sports than they are now for, for the girls. And um, we got really lucky that five minutes down from our house a brand new tennis center opened up called tennis world and I'm from Middlesbrough originally and it was it I think we just got very very lucky where we had all of the young passionate hard-working tennis coaches at that time kind of all in one place um loads of young kids my age boys and girls but it was a really kind of family oriented club so the social side of it was was brilliant like loads going on so my dad would used to just kind of drop me down at 9am on a Saturday and pick me up at 6pm and I've just been running around all all day probably plays about an hour two hours of tennis but then play football hide and seek water fights so my childhood was kind of quite normal considering what I ended up doing with my tennis but I so I started at like five years old, but did all sports, uh, field hockey, football, through the javelin, did everything. But tennis was always my kind of number one. Um, and then like played a lot of junior tennis, traveled the country, but was I was in a full time school. So I was at a comprehensive school, Nunthorpe Comprehensive, which at the time had like Jonathan Woodgate, who 
everyone will know was one of the top Newcastle players, went to Real Madrid. Uh, Liam Plunkett, who played cricket for England. Chris Tomlinson, who was at the Olympics, uh, triple jumper. So came from a really cool area. And my, my tennis kind of started to take off when I was 17 and started to do very well with it. But wasn't kind of, I wasn't talent ID'd, I, I wasn't funded, I was kind of left to my own devices. So I stumbled across the American University pathway route, basically. So where did that take you on that front when you started going out into the US college system, etc.? Um, it allowed me kind of, I don't, I was quite shy growing up and I, it was nice when I found my kind of group of tennis friends where I felt like I fitted in school I never felt that I really kind of fitted but tennis was when I really kind of started finding confidence and but I never believed in my game I had all these people telling me oh you could be very good but I didn't believe them I wasn't seeing results really went off to American University and kind of fell into Americans are very confident and very positive and with all the kind of on on site capabilities of playing every day, two to two and a half hours in the sunshine, competing every weekend, having a really good support system around me, my tennis really started to take off. And I started seeing the results that my uh, coach, Nigel Garten, had been telling me from 15 years old that I, I would start growing into my game. He always said, look, you're going to peak when you're 21. That's when you're going to start playing your best tennis. But when you tell a 15-year-old that, you think, 21's ancient. Like, that's a long time to wait. But he, he was kind of right. Like, I had a big serve, big forehand. Never went in when I was a junior. Really started to work well when I was in America. Um, so just kind of ended up moving up the rankings until I finished. I was top 10 in college tennis um, and that's when I was asked if I wanted to go pro and someone would find a sponsor for me and this is kind of where my life starts it's funny when you look back to see all the pathways and different ways your life has changed and I ended up then living in Las Vegas for a year and a half when I first went pro which I would never have kind of dreamed of that when I was young um, and then moved back down to London and I was living in Cheltenham for a bit with Pete Russell, another very good coach. And that's when I was on the tour for 10 years, basically. So all of these dreams that I didn't really have as a junior because I never figured that I would ever be a professional tennis player. Um, I ended up representing my country, Fed Cup. I won a bronze medal at the Commonwealth Games, played every Grand Slam. Um and that's just being a kind of a normal teenager from Middlesbrough who had too much energy, basically, and was put into every type of sport. I think something you said that was really interesting there was around you had a really big serve and a really big uh, forehand. At what point did you begin to recognise that that was actually a super strength for you? And was it you that recognised it or was it coaches? Uh, I don't think I, I've never really recognised like even looking back with thinking how well I did like getting to 65 in the world it's 
because it's just your life you're kind of not really ever aware of it my serve helped me out of a lot of trouble a lot of the time I, I wasn't the best mover um and so I wasn't that quick around the court so having big weapons are really important basically and I had two of them and then I factored in I could volley I could slice I had good hands and then the big thing and that's what I tell a lot lot of my players who I help place into universities is I just had a very good work ethic like I just kept going and going and I was determined and I just competed hard and kind of kept working on things I enjoyed I enjoyed learning and kind of trying to master a new skill and trying to kind of educate the players now that look even when I was 26 that's when I became a double specialist I was learning all these new things and because you think once you get there that's it but you look at Nadal like his winning the Australian Open you could tell that his game he'd been working on moving forward being able to volley so it's just all these different things that you start adding into your game but having a large serve and a a big forehand is certainly something that you need when you move as slow as I used to. So, so is that something you consciously developed or was that just something that naturally as you just grew up, you're like, oh, I can actually do this. This is something I'm pretty good at compared to everyone else. Yeah, I, yeah no, I, I think it's just something that I was, I'm quite tall. I'm five foot ten, got long levers and I just had a very good, my, Nigel was such a good coach and he, at the time, Tennis World, we have so many players representing Great Britain and all of us had very good technical foundations. And my, I remember kind of le- trying to learn the second serve where you spend a lot of time kind of kneeling down. So you just you couldn't use your legs and you just were understanding how to do pronation and the technique. But I don't I don't remember, I guess as a junior, I, I kind of it was always a big serve, but it was just more that it was mechanically it was very sound and would flow. And it and my forehand was always quite nice as well. But I have no backhand, but I had a good forehand that I could use. Um how so you mentioned there a little bit around the teaching of the second serve. How did you at that time kind of develop skills? Was it very drill based in terms of like you've mentioned there hitting 100, 200, 300 balls in a very precise way? Or was there open ended games where you were getting more points for certain actions? What did that look like? Yeah, we had it because it was so many players at that time. And we also had we linked in with the Teesside University. So there was a lot of older players and loads of adults. Um, I probably had about two hours a week of individuals with Nigel where we'd be very specific basket feeds. But then it was all squad sessions after that. Um, So you'd have an hour and a half with squads, maybe before school. Probably didn't play as... I I know now there's a lot more squads where it's more points-based and you just play. We kind of did that on a Friday night where you'd literally just play sets with people. But a lot of the time it was more drill based in the squads where you just the bog standard drilling, basically cross cut forehands, change direction down the line, a lot of stuff like that. So it was a nice mixture. But yeah, no, I know nowadays a lot of kids like to go more to individuals and not really be part of a big group and have it be fun, which for me, it, it wouldn't have worked too well. I, I found tennis quite anxiety ridden as a kid 
juniors I, f- I found very stressful so if it wasn't for that social group that I had where it was more fun in the squad sessions then I, I probably wouldn't have made it to be honest so for me being surrounded by so many people really helped why why did you find it anxiety ridden I don't know my my parents didn't put any pressure on me at all they were kind of the perfect parents of just being supportive and if I lost I lost but I, th- I just put the pressure on myself really and I used to I used to count the days down to a tournament and kind of worry for the, I don't know, 10 days building up to the tournament. I'd get more and more anxious until the day of the event. I'd be in the car and I just, my friends would just laugh because I just wouldn't speak. I'd be so nervous. And I'd there would be times when I'd go on and play at nationals where I literally, I played at the first round of nationals one year and I was so tight and scared that my first serve literally flew over the net and hit the girl in the chest. It didn't bounce. It was just like so flat and hard. And and it wasn't until I was kind of 17 and knew I was going off to America where I, st- I started not caring as much. But those it, those initial years, it was it was very difficult. This might be a loaded question here. Were at, your, at the time in your region, were you known as the best tennis player in that area for your age group? No, and that's what was kind of nice for me. I wasn't um, that at Tennis World, we had so many good players like Joanna Cunliffe, Lindsay Davison, Libby Fletcher, Lydia Perkins. They were all kind of all LTA players at the time. It was called Rover, that was the sponsorship. So all of them would have their special Rover sweaters and you'd know who the Rover kids were. And I was never one of them. I was never talent ID'd. So I'd never got any funding, which which was great for me because it that just my friends who had that kind of Rover title and everyone knew who they were and they were funded. They were the people who like everyone wanted to beat. And I was kind of left to my own devices. So it, I think that helped me a lot, kind of just being left and ignored a little bit so that I could. And also I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder and liked to prove people wrong. So <laughs> that helped kind of spur me on to want to get better. So I was I was one of the best in my county and in the in the region, but not nationally. I wasn't I wasn't that highly ranked. Uh, I was just wondering, because you mentioned there around the anxiety stuff, I can imagine if um if your persona was around being a very good tennis player and everyone the target on your back that kind of goes hand in hand but it's interesting that maybe you found the challenges away from that in terms of there were people ahead of you you had a chip on your shoulder but you still found it challenging from a I guess a level of performance perspective of putting pressure on yourself to make sure you perform yeah it's it's weird looking back I just uh, but I guess I have players now who it's the same thing. You get, you're nervous and it's worrying, but, and they'll have parents who are like mine who are just really supportive and like kind of weren't, weren't abusive if you lost a match. They were kind of like, well, it's just a match. So it wasn't, it literally, the tennis side of things I didn't particularly enjoy until I was 17. what kept me going was the social side of it and the friends that I had and in the summer there was loads of summer we'd play a lot of tournaments but 
I might lose first round and still be there for the full week hanging out with people and having fun and that's that's kind of what kept me going really what was it at 17 I know you mentioned a little bit about no knowing you were going to go away and stuff but was there anything else around that time that kind of switched for you to make you go actually the pressure doesn't need to be on as much as it is and you began to have think more success you mentioned earlier yeah I think it probably was more um my game just started working so for years Nigel had just said keep hitting it you have to be aggressive all of these people who are kind of pushers and are making a lot of balls you're going to overtake them at some point but you've just got to keep going after your shots and you're going to miss but they're going to start getting closer and closer to the line as you get older so I just kind of kept going for it and I guess at 17 the balls which I was missing by a few inches started to drop in and then that's when the results came and I think by that point as well I kind of knew that okay I can get a full scholarship at an American university which that takes even though my parents we never they never said oh I'm spending so much money on your tennis and you're losing like that was never anything that was said to me but it's I'm sure subconsciously as a young person knowing that I could go to America and there was that was it for my parents having to fund my tennis and then that was probably something that got removed stress-wise. And was there any particular reason as to why those shots began dropping in? Was there anything you did different (laughs) or any particular training or anything? No, I probably just hit more and more. Like, I trained every day. Um, Like, I probably did an hour and a half every day, which wasn't a lot compared to the ones who were kind of full-time. But I just think if you just keep practising... Nigel I'm sure tweaked a few things technically to make sure that I was becoming a bit more consistent a bit more controlled aggression with my shots but I think you just I think it's just ball you just hit tons of balls and it starts to click and then when it you start to see the results of it then you just gain confidence really so if I if I'd been consistently just hitting it into the fence and not really understanding what I was doing then but I'm I like to learn and I would enjoy learning and it's I'm old now so remembering what I was thinking back then as a 15 year old I'm not sure but I would imagine I'm similar to how I am now with kind of being a student of the game and wanting to learn and being able to like listen to my coach and do what they say basically. Going on to that coaching perspective how important is it having someone there that I guess one you trust but two that kind of identifies well no if you're gonna have this as your super strength if you know if your ability to hit a ball hard is going to be what could be a USP and make you a pro you've got to keep doing it you can't go to pushing it around the court or one of my friends that we spoke about earlier moonballing he used to come back from a tournament and be like people are moonballing me it's doing my head in yeah. Um, how important is it to have a coach that actually really um, really just allows you to feel comfortable to keep doing it even if you get it wrong? Yeah, no, he was, he was amazing. And that's why we had so many good players come through and we still do now just because I'd had a lot of outside kind of from the Federation and everything saying, look, we can't fund you. You're not winning enough. You need to make more balls. 
And so I guess if I'd had a coach who wasn't willing to kind of stand up, then I might have just changed my game style. But he was just like, nope, keep doing what you're doing. Plus, we grew up on artificial grass, so it doesn't really lend itself to like slowing it down and being a pusher because it just flies. So maybe that also helped me just with kind of being able to slice, being able to have a big serve, big forehand, I can volley. But yeah, like Nigel, Nigel's one of the main reasons why I was successful and why so many of us who've come through that club are still in the tennis world, like trying to help people. Uh, like Joanna Cudliffe works for the LTA and we've got players, uh, Libby Fletcher still coaches at Tennis World doing amazing things with the juniors there. So he's kind of, it was such a, fun place to be part of that we all kind of see it as a second home and we still go back and and enjoy going there looking at making that jump then what was that like for a 17 year old you or 18 year old you obviously you're you mentioned earlier you're quite shy and you're going completely across new part of the world no friends with you new environment so I guess how did you see it from a personal perspective and how did you adapt to life there but then in terms of like a facility and support area was there anything in particular that you thought actually this is this in reflection this really helped me push on in my tennis yeah um because I think as a junior I never had goals of going pro because I never thought I was any good so that never like a lot of players I help are just like that's my end goal I want to go pro but I never had that goal and I just so it was always stage by stage for me so we managed to get myself over to America um we placed ourselves my mum basically did everything bless her like it was before the internet so she was doing a lot of calls on the landline talking to college coaches um like I think back like I I was too nervous to speak to the coaches on the phone which is ridiculous because all of my players now like they're on zoom with them there must be like so it's quite quite stressful and I couldn't even speak to them on the phone about when I was being recruited um I ended up going to Rice University which academically is very very strong like an Oxford Cambridge uh Durham type university where if I'd applied as a student they would have deleted my application immediately because I'm I work hard but I was a BC GCC student but I got in because of my tennis and when you go over to America you um immediately walk into a team so you have friends straight away so I think as much as it was very scary going across the pond and being away a long way from your family you actually have such a big support system around you which you might not actually get at a British university that you like you're picked up by the coach from the airport. You've got seven immediate friends on the team who you hang out with. You've got academic advisors. You've got other athletes who you tend to congregate with. So the transition wasn't that hard. Um, And plus you're going into a week, which is called, you have orientation week. So at Rice, that was kind of, the best week of my life like it was so much fun and um and I remember thinking gosh if the four years are like this this is going to be incredible 
but then the academics and the classes started and I soon realized that I was not intelligent enough to keep up with anyone at the university like it was it was pretty crazy so I was like working till 2am every morning just trying to stay on track with my work um which and I didn't particularly the the tennis setup there for me wasn't great the the coach initially he's retired now but the coach initially thought that um I I would maybe play doubles and I wouldn't play singles but I ended up playing number one doubles and was number two singles one and two singles and so um I did well my freshman year considering I was struggling academically and I ended up transferring across to where my best friend Joanna Cunliffe was she was at the University of Houston and then so that was a little bit more manageable academically and my tennis then really started to to take off because I I wasn't up till 2am worrying about philosophy and reading Immanuel Kant about 25 times. Uh, imagine going to one of the uh, Rice's Ivy League, right? Um, they they're like Ivy League of the South. That's what they kind of class them. Yeah. But I remember one of the first kind of uh, we were talking to one of the academic people, and they were just like, "We pride ourselves on having the biggest workload in America." And I was just like, "Oh." <laughs> so my and my friends all like I had my first semester. I had philosophy. Um, English, history, and then psychology, big like reading classes. And I had to read like a book a week for English. And my friends are like, yeah, you just scan it and then write a report. And I was just like, I can't scan anything and then take it in. And but because they're so intelligent, they were just like, yeah, just scan it, do this. And so I, I realized I was out of my depth with that one. Um under you in the slightest there that would that would be for me um so in terms of support when you also got to Houston and whatnot um and looking around the tennis side what things did they have in place to help you continue to progress um and obviously I think you mentioned Nigel said you'll play your best tennis around 21 years of age which you said kind of came true was there any particular reason that they help you to achieve that um, I think it was just matches. I just you just consistently play matches every single weekend. So you just and you're being placed into a very stressful situation because you're expected to win. So and my game was just really starting to flow by that point. And with that, I had the American kind of bravado and confidence. So I, I never I didn't really lose. Um and then I got, I had a really good, I had a lot of coaches through college. Like when I moved to University of Houston, Stina Oswald was the coach there, but then she was having another child. So she retired. And then Jen Hyde, who is the current Florida State uh, University coach, she became our coach. And she, that was another kind of, another great coach for me to have with what I needed at that time in my life. Um, and I just remember, I think it was my junior year, I was doing well. I was like ranked 50th in college. Um, and I remember she took me out to Jamba Juice or somewhere. And she was just like, look, you could do a lot better. Like you need to work more, like do extra. And, and I always remember that kind of chat and 
And so from then on, I was doing extra fitness. I was getting my diet better, making sure that I um, wasn't eating the wrong things, which you can easily do in America. And so I got a lot fitter and then my game again took off again. I went from 50 up to top 10. And that was that was probably one of the big chain changes again, just from that talk that Jen gave me. I think that's a really interesting thing. You talk about a coach probably understanding something in you that maybe you don't. And if you frame that wrong, that could be a massive detriment. But it seems like she pitched it kind of right to, in the right environment to say, actually, we're not utilising what you've got. Like We see it and you, you're not utilising it at the moment. Yeah, it was It's really quite a vivid memory. And I was working hard and everything, but and she didn't. And yeah, and she said it in a way where I didn't be like, well, I'm I'm doing well, like I'm 50, what do you expect? And I was like, oh, okay. So I got special, um, I, I'd like sourced out what players did on the pro tour with fitness and and just made sure that my diet was a lot better. I, I probably dropped about a stone in my, I, I needed to drop a stone. I was like 14 pounds um, too heavy and then, and that just really allowed me to do a lot better. And did, did she say to you these other specific areas and here's what we're going to give you? Or did she tell you, like, these are some of the areas, go and research what you need to do? No, she literally just said, you could be doing a lot better, work harder, do extra. <laughs> that was pretty much it. And I was like, okay. And I guess at the time it was... You could kind of, but she just said it in a way where like I don't work well with coaches. Well, I've never worked with a coach who is kind of verbally abusive and just pushes all the time. So I felt that I'd built up a a relationship with her where I trusted her and I would get positive feedback on a regular basis. So when she did push me or did say something which was difficult to say, I was willing to take it in and and I was old enough as well. Well, I was 20 to be like, okay, yeah, you're right. And so I just, I did more. And then, then you've got everything around you there. You've got all the, the facilities that you need in terms of like physios. So you've got all the hot baths, cold, cold baths to um, loosen up your muscles and everything. The massages, you just, you're being looked after all the time with the strength and conditioning coaches. So you, you kind of got this team around you, which someone like Andy Murray would have on the pro tour, I, I was getting that at university, which is really helpful without worrying about the cost. I, I, I came out with no debt, which nowadays is difficult to do. Yeah, I think what's interesting about that tactic, the way she said it as well, is it makes you look and maybe be honest with yourself. So you mentioned earlier, like I needed to lose 14 pounds. And probably there's a bit of you going at that time and I would have been the same, oh, actually, no, if I lost a bit of weight, I might be more mobile. Or actually, you know what? If I recovered better, I would probably perform better in training. But you're like, but I'm doing enough now, it's fine. Whereas when she goes with that open-ended, like, listen, you're top 15 now, which is great, but you're not utilising everything you've got. You could be top 10, figure it out. You've got to have a level of honesty in yourself and go, right, actually what am I kidding myself on here and it is nutrition it is strength conditioning it is this and then I need to be the one to fix it it kind of comes from you rather than her forcing you to do it if you like yeah no I think you're right it was 
Yeah, it was certainly a, a turning point in that that fall, so the August to December time, you have all the the big tournaments. I I ended up I won regionals, which is huge. So the region like was the whole of Texas and then Arkansas and I think Louisiana, like just and it was a very strong region. And the draw for the tournament at the time was 128, so I had to win like six seven matches. And I ended up winning it. And then that propelled me into the indoor nationals, which was just a huge event. And so I just started kind of picking away at all these different people who were well-known, who were at the schools like UCLA, Cal Berkeley, Stanford, the University of Florida's, like Houston, everyone was like, who is this girl from Houston? Like, and I ended up starting to do a lot better. And that, and that just then propelled me onto the next like transition which I, I, I have no idea when I started thinking about going pro, like everyone's like, well, when do you want it? When did you want to go pro? And I'm, I kind of just, that's, I just moved on to the next pathway basically. Well, it's like a natural progression through it sounds like. Yeah. So what, what does that process actually look like? Cause we talk about, we'll see in football is quite a defined thing. It's kind of a contract and then you turn pro, but what, what does it actually look like in, in a process from you guys? You obviously graduate and then what, you just start playing tournaments so you can like a lot of people say I'm a pro and I'm on the tour because anyone can be but realistically unless you well you don't make any money till you top 100 so like I, I was number two in Great Britain for singles and 199 in the world at the time and I was about 10,000 pounds in debt if I'd been a football player I would have been on a hundred grand a week at that level. So I kind yeah, of, yeah, I chose, yeah, so it'd be fine. Yeah, I chose the wrong spot, but yeah, it's kind of just a lot of players do it where you, there'll be a group. Like I was lucky. There was a group of us who were kind of graduating at the same time. Um, that a lot of the top 10 went a lot more rapidly up the rankings than I did like BB like who won nationals. She got into the top hundred, I think within like, six to 12 months um so our paths we started together but then they moved on quicker than me but the big thing for American University is this it's a nice bridge to the tour so all of those years I would have done if I'd gone pro at 18 and had to start at the lowest level I wasn't kind of mature enough emotionally mentally physically I wasn't but because of college, I'd had four years to improve my game. Once I got on the tour, I got into the top 300 within a year, which meant that I didn't get stuck in the lowest possible tournaments where you run out of money. Emotionally, you just like, what am I doing with my life? Um, mentally, it's very difficult. So at least I made that big jump quickly, which is what you tend to see. And then once you get into the top 300, especially being British, I started kind of getting wild cards into Wimbledon and and being helped a little bit like that, which which again, well, everyone dreams of playing Wimbledon. Then all of a sudden at 23, I'm playing Wimbledon with Jane O'Donoghue in the doubles. So it was kind of a nice reward. Yeah, we'll come back to that in a sec. So I want to I quiz you on that moment, etc. But in terms of like the brutality of schedule 
Um, one thing, kind of doing a bit of research into this and also having a bit of an interest in tennis, um, it seems like it's kind of a catch-22 where if you're a top player, you can probably get enough ranking points to get into competition so you can pick and choose what ones you go to, what ones you don't go to, manage your schedules. But it seems like if you're in that kind of grey area where you have to play tournaments to accrue enough ranking points to get in or get wildcards or be in qualification. But by doing that number of tournaments, you're then obviously more fatigued from both playing, psychologically, all that type of stuff. So what would actually a yearly schedule look like for someone at that kind of 200, well, 100 to 300 range? What would it actually look like schedule-wise? How many tournaments do you play in? How vast and exhausting is it for those guys? Oh, it, yeah, it's brutal. You kind of, you just, you're just away all the time. I think I went around the globe twice in one year, just constantly traveling. Um, I One of my doubles partners uh, was Courtney Nagel. She's the University of Oregon head coach. And it's when we decided that we'd, we'd just focus on doubles and we played like eight tournaments in a row I think I traveled through seven countries in a 24-hour period or something ridiculous because you just you just you don't have much money so we're going from Slovenia on a 4am train to get to I don't even know where we're coming from like Austria and then you're going to Sweden then we're flying across to America like it's it's just constant and you're doing it on a a very small budget as well because so, all your flights you're buying last minute um and so you're not traveling in style and and when I was first started out I traveled with Emily Webley Smith and you just you'd share rooms with people all the time and share like imagine staying in Japan in like their their hotel rooms are tiny in the single bed and but the cost of fortune like you'd have to just all kind of make do so it's very difficult, like very demanding. You just, and you travel, you're just literally traveling every week. Like you, you can't really stop because you've got to build up those points. Um, and I remember being on the WTA tour and sat down with one of the, the doctors. Um, she was amazing. Like really, she helped when I had my head injury, but they had this, they had this program where they'd put in your tournaments and you get a red flag if you like hadn't had a week. So there's just red flags dinging all the time. You just like, I know it doesn't make sense to play six in a row, but that's just what you have to do, unfortunately. And, and some of the places you're in, you're in Mexico for six weeks. And at the beginning you're staying with families, which is fun, but it's, it can be quite draining emotionally after a while. So in terms of, uh, there's two questions there, in terms of finances, how are you financing it? Is there prize money or what does that look like? I guess if you got knocked out early on, then there's definitely no prize money and you're kind of going through. And when you are looking at it from um, a travelling perspective, how how much effect does it have on your performance? Because you would have gone from being in a college system where, you know, got everything catered for you, you got physio, you got all these things to now actually you've kind of got a grind of every single week. You're having to go somewhere new, probably not as catered food wise. You're probably going, well, whereas before I was getting salmon with whatever to now it's like, well, what's open at 3am when we arrive, I've got to eat, I've got a game tomorrow at 11. 
how do you manage both those things? It was like, it's funny, looking back, I had probably six years on the ITF tour and they were, they're my fondest memories. Like uh, that, that it was really fun because I just got out of college. I'm traveling with my college friends, but you like, we're in Mexico and in order, in order to get to each event, you had to take a bus, but these bus journeys are 10 hours long. So you like going on these buses for, t- I remember going, where did we, we were going, me and Emily were going to Poza Rica, which is like, you go over the mountains, you're on this, so you can imagine what, like, it's quite scary going around all these like villages and stuff, then down into the canyon. And like, I remember the short, I don't it was showing like glitter, you know, the Mariah Carey movie. I just remember that being on. And then we'd forgotten to take the, the bus ride before I'd given us food. So we hadn't bothered to buy any, but this one didn't have food. So you've got 10 hours on a bus. Um, another one was overnight. So you got 10 hours on a just a normal bus overnight. And then you get into the next destination. And so it's just really debilitating. It's good fun. Like, looking back at because you're young and it's it's really fun but it's it's not something you can do for a long time and that's when why we lose a lot of probably good players because it is so debilitating um and I guess I was lucky because I come from a country where we have a grand slam and at the time they would give out wild cards for those who they felt warranted it and so that's that's kind of what helped me get stay in the tennis and continue on just that kind of influx of money each June but at the time like I don't think they exist anymore but there was like not sent credit cards I just like the do you remember the egg credit card like there was the egg credit card I'd do for not percent I'd juggle it and then I'd switch once the not percent ran out I'd go to another not percent card so I just literally be juggling credit cards the whole time um until I got the influx of cash each year from Wimbledon, and that would then give me another 12 months. I don't know. It's crazy. Yeah, it? I know. And then I was, and I was good, but I just, there's, there's no money in tennis unless you top 100. So, the, again, this will link into what we said then. You've gone through all of this stuff, and then you get the, I don't know if it's an email, letter, call, what it is. You got a wild card at Wimbledon. Was that your first exposure at Glam Grand Slam? Had you had any others, or was that the first one? No, my first. Yeah, my first one. I met so Jana Donahue's from Wigan. So I kind of knew her as a junior, but not really. And um, her coach was Nick Brown at the time. And I guess they'd seen me play at there was a ten thousand dollar tournament in Tallahassee, which is Florida, where Florida State University is. And Jane was there as well, and I'd actually done all right. So Nick had kind of said to Jane, you should partner with Sarah, and then you can apply for a wild card. And for me, Jane was an LTA player, so this was huge for me because the likelihood of us getting one was quite high, even though I didn't, I didn't know how it all worked back then. I was literally just out of college. So, yeah, to walk on court, I think I was on court 18, at Wimbledon against Laura Granville and Alexandra Stevenson uh, was amazing. So that was kind of my first real feel of what a Grand Slam was. And then for years, I'd thought 
the grass court season was different to all the other tournaments because for a British person it was like you're worrying about wild cards you've got all the media attention there's people asking for tickets friends you haven't spoken to for years suddenly we're like hi Sarah like so it was a huge like three three to four weeks of your life which was just like everything but then when I started getting um automatic places into the other slams and playing the French Open US Open Australia you realize Wimbledon's just another tournament and all the other internationals just see it as another part of the calendar um but initially for me those first five years when Wimbledon was the only Grand Slam I was playing it was literally you'd have the grass court season and then everything else and so it, it was nice to finally just be like okay it's it's just another tournament it's just another event and going from there. How did you find out that you got offered a place what's the process of that? I can't I, like you have to write a letter to the Wimbledon committee requesting a wild card and then and then it gets announced by the LTA so you'll probably notice this summer it'll get announced um on social media on the BBC who gets wild cards and then afterwards you thank the Wimbledon committee for granting one so um yeah you'll you'll start seeing things now you'll be like oh there's a wild card being announced in June so but it's it is a hard because you're getting wild cards there's all the build-up events so you can't really, it might make more sense for your tournament schedule to actually go off to Holland and play the WTA there. But when you're kind of waiting on wildcards, you can't, re- you have to be in the UK. So when I got to 65 in the world, I could dictate my own t- tournament schedule and not play at Birmingham WTA, maybe go off to Holland. But you, it, but a lot of the time when you're waiting on wildcards because you need them, you might not know until like a few days before which event you're playing, which again, it was very difficult. And in terms of that feeling, what you also you found out, you kind of know you're going there and it's your first time at a Grand Slam, it's Wimbledon, which you would have grown up watching, uh, maybe going to visit and, and, and et cetera. What was that experience like? the first time you kind of go through and go, yeah, here's my players pass rather than the spectators pass. What was that journey and feeling actually like? No, oh, it was, uh, I literally, I was spent all day there and my, I met Jez Green there who was Andy Murray's fitness trainer for a long time. And now he's Zara's fitness trainer. Um, and I met him there, but I literally just would spend all day there, like go and train and then go to the gym and that kind of just hang out. And then you realise when you've done it, it's your seventh year, you actually do it professionally. And I would sit at home and relax and just get the car in to when I needed it. But the first few years, you just like, you sign the players like restaurant with all the, all the famous players and everything. And you're in the training room with them or in the locker room. So yeah, I just spend all day there initially, but then you soon realise that that's quite tiring and, no one else was doing that so but yeah it was fun did you see any differences did when you were there obviously you're there for an entire day did you see anything where you go that's why they're a top 50 player or top 10 player was there anything you were able to put your finger on either the way they prepared or the skills that they had you go wow that is like another level 
Yeah, they were. It's just like I got to sixty five, and I probably maxed out because in order to get higher, you just really the attention to detail is just so incredible. As much as I worked hard, I wasn't very good at stretching and really kind of I'd stretch, but I didn't do it as Andy Murray would do. Like my attention to detail to the very small things, which all add up to be very important. Mine wasn't there. And then also mentally looking back, I wish I'd invested more in getting a psychologist to help me with different things. Cause that was, I kind of, I had a big game. Like if you watch me practice, I can hit any shot apart from a backhand return. I can, I have a big serve, big forehand. I can slice, I can volley. You put that on someone with a very good mentality, then they could probably do a lot more with it than I did. But so I wish I'd invested more in getting psychological help. The mental side of things I didn't really pay too much attention to. But so I so I kind of I feel I maxed out and I'm happy. I walked away from tennis thankful that I achieved everything and I was happy it was over. Like that was the 10 years of my life, which was fun, and I was ready to stop. But yeah, the, the elite, like you see what Andy Murray does, like it's literally every minute of the day is dedicated to getting better. And I'm, I wasn't, so <laughs> I got to where I did, but I, like you, to be like a Nadal or a Serena Williams, like that kind of dedication, that's why they're there and very few people make it there. And is it? introvert focus or is external so say for example Nadal's playing like a Roddick back in the day would he would he focus on Roddick's strength and going this is how I'm going to combat this type of player or is it a focus on right these are my strengths going into a, a game this is how I'm going to you know this is how I'm going to expose the opponent using my strengths and building a game plan kind of around what that individual is able to do. What, what does that look like game plan wise? Yeah, I think you like for me, especially I always like to put my game style on the court and be aware of what they didn't like or how to play them. But I think a lot of the time the elite players will put their game onto the court and just do a few tweaks if, if needed, like you see Nadal, how he's added bits to his game. Even after he's won 20 odd grand slams, he's adding bits to his game just to get that little bit better. Um, but yeah, the elite, like I think Judy Murray would be very, she works a lot with Andy with match analysis and watching people who his opponents and coming back with a game plan and everything. Like that's not something I ever did. But if I was playing someone for doubles, we knew, like if someone played me, they knew quite quickly and already knew that if they served slow to my backhand return, I would get the yips and probably dump in the net. And so people literally just roll in their serve to my backhand. And so you can't, you'd know that there'd be certain things which would, in a very key moments, would break down. And you kind of were aware of that with most opponents. I think that's really interesting like you said maybe using it in critical moments using that yeah. thing against so it doesn't need to be all the time but it'd go in 
a big point, you know, you're about to break or something like that, go, this is probably where this ball's going to go. And <laughs> yeah. pressure's on you to make the shot. Smile at me and be like, here it comes. And it just roll in. I'd be like, oh, so yeah, it's just like, oh, you, everyone, you knew their game style and how to kind of combat it when once it got close. Because you look at all the elite players, you can, you can be really close with them. But when it came to the key points, they would step up another level and and that would be the difference. And in terms of a doubles pairing, how do you go around kind of finding the right person for you? Because I can imagine, using a golf analogy, Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson used to be terrible at doubles together because they just used to clash and their personalities didn't work. If you've got a doubles pairing on a tennis court that are both very fiery and all of a sudden are bickering back and forth. That's not going to be good. If you, Potentially, if you've got people who've got very similar games that can't do particular skills, I imagine that'd be challenging. So how would you go around, I guess, finding an individual that works for you on a social, personal level, because you're going to be spending time with that person, but then also that's got a game that can make you as a pair very well-rounded? Yeah, like first I kind of looked for my friends and luckily my friends like Courtney Nagel uh, the Oregon coach is who I really like I think we were like 240 in the world and we played the Felix Stowe tournament right after Wimbledon um, and by the end of the year we were kind of creeping into the top 100 like we'd literally played a tournament every week but it was fun like it was nice traveling with her we enjoyed uh, working together on the court. I had a big serve, big forehand, so I would set her up at the net, and she was so fast at the net and amazing hands. So we complemented each other very well. Um, we neither of us. The biggest problem was neither of us uh, could return really well. So if if it did become close, like when I, I played with Martina Hingis at. Um, world team tennis and she literally just never missed a return and so that took the pressure off me returning because I knew that she was never going to miss but me and Courtney it that wasn't a strength in our game so that's we did well but we both struggled with that so yeah you're trying to find someone who compliments you so like Abby Spears and Raquel Cops Jones worked really well together because Abby's returns never missed Raquel was really fast around the net um, I think for men's doubles, possibly it's a bit more contractual where you might not like the person, but it's a job and you're making money. And so it can be a bit less, I'm going to be your friend kind of thing. But for me, it was, I was going to travel with this person and spend long, long hours with them. So I, I wanted to enjoy it basically. I imagine that's quite imperative. If you're spending 10-hour coach journeys with someone you don't like, I imagine that yeah. must be a nightmare. Yeah, and, and the tough thing with doubles, that, like, I think it's changed a little bit now, but, like, if you don't have a constant doubles partner, like, you'd have to go to an event and find someone, and then what would happen is, as a doubles pair, you would sign in, and before you'd have until noon on the Sunday to sign in as a doubles pair, and they would calculate who got in the top 16 based on their combined rankings. So at 11.45 on a Sunday, let's say me and you are in, but we're number 16 pair. So we'd be like, 
oh gosh, I hope no one else signs in. And some people would wait until the last five minutes to sign in, which would then dump me and you out. So then you'd have to scramble to find someone who has a higher ranking to then sign back in with someone else. So I don't miss that. I, I remember being at Indian Wells and me and Raquel were like probably, I don't know, last two in. And there was about 15 minutes to go and just hoping that no one else would sign in and, and push us out. But if you think you've spent all the money to get to the tournament and you don't actually know if you're in it and you have to kind of have anxiety before that 12 o'clock hour ticks by. Sounds like a nightmare. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> when, once you get a constant partner, it's great yeah. when you know that you're getting into events. But I had a few, when I played Raquel Cops Jones, there was a few events where we were borderline, like we'd flown to Dubai. Or there was a, an event where I, we went in Australia, we went to Brisbane for the build-up to the Aussie Open. And me and um, Mary-Eve Pelletier, we didn't get into Brisbane, but we had time to fly to Auckland and sign in. So we then flew to New Zealand to sign in there, to play there. So it's it's pretty mental when you think about it. So I get this could be going to something that's more anxious, less anxious. Um, but you mentioned it earlier around the Commonwealth Games out in Delhi, I believe. Yeah, that was good. So um, in terms of that, what was the process of being involved in that? And how was that for you? Because I imagine that must be quite different because you've gone from traveling potentially with one other person or a small group of people that you know to you've got a whole kind of band of, of yeah, English people and stuff so how, how how did that come about and then what was that feeling like for you kind of representing the nation in, in the Commonwealth Games? Yeah it, um, it was actually right near the end of my career I'd had a really bad head injury um, in the uh, July like that July and the Commonwealth Games was in the October November um, and so I'd been out for a long time with I'd, I'd been hit in the back of the head and so my brain had been bruised. So it was like a concussion, but even worse, I was I lost like my speech was very slurred. My balance had gone. Like, it was a really hard few months of like rehabilitation. And luckily, the WTA were amazing. I kind of traveled around with them. That from a shot was that from someone trying to hit yeah, you? Yeah, I was playing the Stanford WTA, and we'd just beaten Lisa Raymond and Renee Stubbs, who were like top ten doubles players. It was like it was the first match where me and Raquel had kind of actually done really well and had a complete match. And then the next match, I um, we were playing um, two people, and one of them had a high forehand really close to me at the net, and like kind of went at me and I turned and it hit the base of my skull so we won the match because my adrenaline just kept pumping I didn't really feel bad at all and then Raquel was like oh should you go and see the trainer and just get your head checked I was like oh I'm fine but luckily one of the trainers was like why what's happened so they made me sit there for an hour until my adrenaline kind of ebbed away and that's when I started feeling horrific so I had to do like and when I was in Canada, they got an ice hockey doctor in to do like the concussion tests. And I was I like I couldn't close my eyes and balance on my foot and touch my nose with my eyes closed. It was it was pretty bad. And um, 
I got cleared at US Open. Um, and then I, because I was still number one in doubles for Great Britain, I was chosen for England to play at the Commonwealth Games, which, well, it, it was just amazing. Like none of us had obviously played for a medal before. So the added stress of knowing that you, you're in the, like we played for the bronze. So knowing that you could walk away without anything was like it was difficult it was different to anything you'd ever come across in tennis because we'd never gone through it before so getting on the podium was amazing it was a brilliant experience I pick on that first I'm going to ask another question what was that like when you're about to step up there and you know that obviously you're going to be getting the medal what was that feeling like as you're waiting for that no oh, it was just it was amazing but I it was tricky because with tennis, it nothing ever stops. And I had a flight at 2 a.m. to get to Linz in Austria for a WTA, and I had to make the flight. And the the gold-silver game was going on late. It was like 11 o'clock at night, and it was almost going to a third set, I think. And I was just thinking, I was thinking oh, my God, I'm going to miss this flight. So... It was kind of once I was up there, it was amazing. But then as soon as I literally jumped off the podium, I was in a taxi and jumping on a plane, fell asleep and woke up in Austria. So it's kind of it was one of those another one of those memories where it's fleeting and you've got the pictures for it. But you, you're literally on to the next event because the WTA tournament was on and you, you've got to get there for signing. Looking at, yeah, I think it's very prudent at the moment. In terms of that feeling of you've obviously been knocked out of gold medal contention, but then you've got to go in almost reset for bronze medal match, and obviously you won a medal. You you come all this way. How how do you go out about that as an athlete to prepare yourself to say right, this isn't a gold or silver but there's still like a job to do here really want to win how what was that process like you're going from a real low to having to motivate yourself ready for yeah. the next one yeah and then you have the it's it's not like if you lose you're gonna get the silver anyway you lose and you get nothing so it was stressful luckily I was with Ken Skupski who was a brilliant doubles player um but the conditions were just it was like probably one of the most bizarre situations I've been in because it was under floodlights in Delhi. So there was just insects everywhere. Like we'd be playing and there'd be a cockroach on our shoulder. Uh, a, a little guy would come on at change of ends with a pink feather duster and a dustpan and brush and would just be banging like grasshoppers and cockroaches and like sweeping them up and running back off. There was just so many, like, if it, if there'd been spiders, I, I wouldn't have been able to go on the court. There was so many insects just in our bags, like, everywhere. So that's what I remember the most about it. But I remember, like, winning and just hugging Ken and just thinking that that was kind of, it, it was like the cherry on the top of my career. Like, I'd gone through all the fun of the ITF, travelling around my friends with no real kind of thought of, playing Grand Slams, just really enjoying the experience. So then going to the WTA Tour, it's far more serious once you get there and less friendly. And then finishing off with a bronze medal. And I was, so by that point, I was kind of like, okay, I'm okay walking away now. I, I feel like I've kind of done everything I can. And so looking into that, how was your transition away? 
Um, did you have a plan set up for knowing exactly what you wanted to do or? Yeah, I'm a bit of um, a workaholic and also like to have jobs. So that's that was the one thing that I struggled with the tour where there's just so much downtime. So from like 2006, I started helping British players with like just understanding what was available to them, the pathways. Um, I approached the LTA and just said, look, can I build a part of the website where there's like directions to like British University, American University. So I remember being in Austra- uh, Austria um, and just Right, I like not on a computer, just writing stuff down and building a website for them, which they did. Um, and so just as it went along, I started talking to more players, helping them for free, talking to parents. And I realized that I was looking more forward with like actually doing this part of the work and not training and not competing, but actually being in the hotel room and like working on things. So once 2011 rolled around and I was still kind of struggling with my head the transition into tennis smart and the placement company I do now was was pretty seamless really and it was it was the right move and I was excited to do it at the time so since then it's kind of been non-stop with that but in terms of what you guys do do it's obviously an invaluable service if you like in terms of giving a different pathway and I think it's always always important for people to have different options and they can choose what's best for them what do you actually provide from a practical setting if there's a young tennis player in the UK what is it that you guys do uh, we basically look after them through every pathway so the first thing we do and even like I did a presentation the other night to players as young as 10 years old just make them aware of what's available because a lot of the time When you go into tennis, it costs a fortune, which is quite stressful for parents. Um, It's not a team sport. So like me, a lot of girls, especially at 15, get very anxious about playing. So we just make them aware that, look, you don't have to go pro. But if you play tennis and stay in school, you can go to a British university where they've got incredible tennis set up now, get a good degree. You've got American university. You can stay in the tennis industry if you're passionate about being a coach or being part of something instead of going to university. And then you can go pro. So we basically make it aware of all the different pathways and then we help people along each one. America being the main driving force, because that's what I'm passionate about, that I'm a product of American University. And then while they're there, we support them. So we have a massive network of all of my, I've helped about a thousand British players. They're all in one network with, these are the companies that I work with now. As I've, I've merged with Keystone Sports. Um, and on that network, they get introduced to people who can then further their careers after graduation. So we have webinars with people in the marketing uh, industry, journalism, if they want to get a master's in a different country, go back to the UK or maybe in Spain, Italy, we can help with that. But there's loads of podcasts and just like uh, different things they can use just to help them with that transition out of university, basically. And so that's what's nice. I just uh, it's just nice to help players. And and if we get a few like me who end up doing really well on the pro tour afterwards, then 
brilliant. If someone's a CEO of a massive company and they've come through us, excellent. Like that, we're just looking to make sure that they have someone guiding them all the way through. Perfect. I guess to some extent you can, you know, provide some personal insight into a journey. But then obviously now if you've got a thousand case studies, you can say, you know, we've had people who've done this, people have done that, and pretty much whatever floats someone's boat, you're able to direct them or provide them with live examples of how it is possible. Yeah. And and what's nice, all of these thousand who have come through us before, they can then also They'll come on and talk. I've got them. Well, I've got about 30 of them who are college coaches. So they can all come on and do webinars, talk to our players, reach out to them, give guidance. And so it's just a nice big support system around everyone. Uh, it sounds like a really good initiative. And um, I can see why you enjoy doing it. Because as you said, helping people, young people, is a it's a really nice feeling when you can see them go on and progress from a maybe shy 17 year old such as yourself to all of a sudden being the CEO of a company or flourishing in journalism or whatever that is yeah that's a big thing just watching them like to see how Joe Salisbury's done winning all the grand slams having gone to Memphis and you got Cameron Norrie like to have players go like for me I wasn't a top junior and just had a normal life as a junior to think that I ended up doing well, having been so anxious about playing and just because I fell into the right pathway for me and got lucky with the type of coaches that I had who were supportive. There's got to be more people. There's got to be more girls, especially like me, who if they just have that added confidence when they're a little bit older, then they could get onto the tour and be successful. Perfect. I've got one last question for you that might be really challenging. So apologies, because it's probably not the nicest one to finish on. But who is the best player or coach you've worked with or against and why? Well, I got all of my coaches have been amazing because they all came at different points in my life, which helped. Um, Like Jez Green, who put my body back together after going through college. But then Louis Kaye, who is the best double specialist coach in the world. Like he's the reason why we have so many top British doubles players like Jamie Murray, um, the Skupskis. And I met him when I was kind of deciding, I was like, okay, my body's starting to really fail. There's a, there's an opening where there isn't really any double specialist. Claire Curran was like retiring um she was the only double specialist really on the women's side so I luckily met Louie and the way he teaches is just well it's just incredible like he's he's just we've got so many good double specialists because of him so I met him and that's what propelled me into the top 100 and that's what allowed me to play all the grand slams and feel as if my career was relatively successful Perfect. Listen, Sarah, I really appreciate your time. I think fascinating insights of what the world of tennis is like and obviously really interesting story in your part. So um, really appreciate it and hope you can catch up with you again soon. Sounds good. Thanks so much.
Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.